If you came to the stage at First Methodist Church during this Lenten season, you could get confused. If someone were to say to you, go up to the front and just follow the arrows, you wouldn't know where to go, right? There are so many arrows. In the mind of Lauren and David, they have created for us this stage set for this Lenten series that I think beautifully describes what it means to be alive in the world in which we live Facing life as divergent creatures, as creatures who have been made in the image of God, we are different from all others in that we actually get to choose, not just respond to the directions we take. That the paths we turn upon have much to do about our future, and yet they are there right for our choosing in front of us turning in different directions, deviating from a course, differing from the crowd or the culture who might be following a common center that might not fit us at all. Now, if we're truthful about it, being divergent is not a great characteristic, not only in the movie, but also not in life. When you're really different and you're really walking a different way, we sometimes feel lonely. We sometimes feel like, The path upon which we are walking is so different that we feel like we stand out. We stick out. A lot of times we don't really want to stick out. We want to go where the flow is going, where the stream is flowing. Because if you're in the stream, you know, it's really hard to get out of the stream if the current is very strong, right? You've seen the movies when people get trapped in in raging water. They can hardly go any direction they want to. They're swept off their feet, and they're without recourse except to be carried away by the water. We don't like that feeling. And yet, as long as you're in the right stream, it flows to a peaceful gulf, right? And really, when you're talking about being divergent, you're not talking about forever fighting against a current, but rather finding yourself in a stream of life and living That is divergent from the numbers and their masses, and yet there's a lot of company there. There's Father, there's Son, there's Holy Spirit. There's the church of Jesus Christ who is in the same stream that you're in. You find yourself more able to be divergent from the masses when you find your own particular mass and flow with it. When you find your sweet spot, if you will, that living like Jesus lived when he walked this earth, we must not forget, and we often do, quite frankly, we do most of the time. Sometimes we wonder why people who are great writers of the scriptures or writers of theology differentiate so much between Jesus who walked the earth and between the Christ who was crucified and resurrected to eternal life. And I used to think that was more for those folks who really weren't Jesus followers, but rather liked the name Christ anyway, because they were a little paranoid about that guy Jesus when he walked the earth. And I'm not sure that's still not partially true, but it does occur to me that there's some real benefit in separating Jesus from Christ in this way only. And that is this, it helps us to remember That the Jesus who walked the earth was just like you and I. He was fully human. We make Jesus, the resurrected Christ, way too often. In fact, Jesus is so Christ-like that we give up trying to follow him. We don't think his temptations were really real. We think, well, after all, Jesus was 
Jesus, right? I mean, not all of us have a birth parent who lives eternally as a Godhead, right? I mean, what chance do we have compared to that? And so therefore, sometimes we get to the passages of Scripture that seem to be too much, and we just want to say, well, I'm not Jesus. Well, actually, you are. Because you see, Jesus was fully human as well as fully divine. And when he walked this earth, he was subjected to every temptation just like you and me. The difference was that he was so completely divergent that he was consistently following the path and the call of God in his life. It's the relativeness of his consistency that makes him different from us, and I think sometimes paralyzes us. It paralyzes us because we think we could never be like that. And granted, at any given moment, we're not like that, are we? Some of you aren't because I've watched you. And you know by now already that I'm surely not that way in some moments. It's very hard to be fully divergent, to be fully turned toward God and no one else every moment of your life, especially when things get difficult. That's why when we read this Sermon on the Mount, people write all kinds of things about it. Even theologians, I I laugh. It's pretty humorous, really. If you'll read six or eight people writing about the same passage of Scripture and get all the different things they say about it, quoting the same verses, you just have to laugh at yourself, kind of. You're kind of like going, really? I mean, like I read one sermon from a pastor talking about the Sermon on the Mount. He says, well, who can be perfect? None of us can anyway. Let's let's be real. Nobody's really perfect. We can't be perfect. And I'm going, well, you just got perfect defined wrong. But in his mind, you just can't get there. In my mind, we can get there from the Wesleyan understanding of Scripture. Perfect in intention. We can do that. We can't be perfect in action. We can't be perfect in every thought that we have except we control every action and every thought to the will of God and to our love of God and love of others. But as long as we have that intention, we can make the best human effort possible at being fully loving. And that makes us perfect in the earth-light sense because we as fallen humanity can't be perfect in the absolute sense of the term. But when Jesus was teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, he was just laying it out there. And quite frankly, that's what gave me the courage finally to preach this sermon. I've been thinking about it for a month, about this passage of Scripture, but not for sure what I would preach on because it's got so many possibilities. And then things just kept coming on, and quite frankly, I didn't want to preach about this passage anymore. I didn't want to preach about it because I knew I'd be preaching to myself. I'd rather preach to David. (laughs) I'd rather preach to you. I'd rather talk about your sins, if you don't mind quite thank you, but I don't really want to think about my own struggles Because I've got too many of them already, and I certainly don't want to make them very public. That's why I put on the road to keep all my sins from your view. You know, know, their sins are everywhere, and we all know them. We know which are particularly harmful for us. In fact, I wanted to preach this sermon so little last night that I just couldn't hardly complete the struggle. And my stomach is all torn up this morning because of it. And I lied this morning to Cindy as another perfect sinful example. She said, how do you feel this morning? I said, great. Liar, liar, your skirt's on fire. My stomach has been rolling. It's been rolling because I've been at war within myself. And I know where I must come out, and I don't particularly like that. Because, you see, my human self and my saved self often get into arguments about life. 
And this passage just wants to hammer on every one of them. They ask for your shirt, give them your coat. Well, how cold is it? Should I give them my house too? Well, why not? No. I mean, what does that mean? I mean, if they hit you on one cheek, turn the other. And the passage that was never written is my favorite one. But what about if they hit you again? It doesn't say what you do after two hits, right? So I think if I can take two punches, then it's a whole new ball game. That's how I think. That's how humans generally think. Right? You remember when you grew up to be teenagers? You thought it was bad when Johnny wouldn't let you ride his tricycle and you really wanted to when you were that tall. But then you got to be this tall. And then somebody wanted to take away what was yours. Your position on a team, an academic team, an athletic team, doesn't matter. Your place in the heart of some other person. You know, somebody had the audacity to like, have a crush on the same person you did. And that fired you right up, right? It was competition time. Or, even worse, your best friend was courting your guy behind your back or vice versa. Or your best friend is meeting your spouse during the lunch hour. It's one thing for your spouse to cheat. That's bad enough. But when they cheat with someone who is very close to you, someone you loved and thought loved you, the righteous anger and hurt is hard to control. Hatred is a word that comes to mind, and hatred is a word that's named in Scripture. You've heard it said, Jesus said. Every time Jesus said, you've heard it said, you need to grab hold of your seat. Because the next verse is not going to make you happy. The completion of that thought is going to upset you. But I say, love your enemies. Oh, my goodness. And pray for those who persecute you. Really? I mean, come on. You've got to be kidding, right? I mean, you've already got me clothesless here. You've already got me with two bruised cheeks. I'm wandering down the road, and you want me to lend to anybody who wants my stuff. Just let them have it. You already told me to just pour out whatever I have to someone else who's demanding of it. And pretty soon, I'm not going to have much left if I just keep on giving. Have you been real, Jesus? What did you, what did you think you were going to have left? Well, if, you, if I followed your rules, I would have to stop at every expressway in Dallas, Texas, and start turning over my stuff to that guy on the corner who's probably living in a better house than I am. Perish the thought, but we know it's reality. Things come our way that are difficult, and we want those teachings to go away. And to pour salt into the wound after all this list of things that he says over and over again, be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect in heaven. An enemy is an armed foe. It's a person who is actively opposed or hostile to someone or to something. It's a thing, a person 
or a person who harms someone or something or tries to harm someone. Softer words for enemy or opponent. I had opponents in basketball. They weren't necessarily my enemies, except they really were. I couldn't stand any of them when the game started. I know, it's terrible to admit it, isn't it? But that's a sin that's a long way behind me because I can no longer run up and down the basketball court. Adversaries, someone who we're competing against. Well, that's a word for, for enemy, but not as strong. Foe, mm, that's a little stronger. Foe is starting to get that negative connotation we think about when we think of an enemy. Antagonist. Combatant. Competitor. What did the children say? What do you want to do when somebody hurts you? You want to hurt them back. Just like that came right out of the mouth of one of our babes. It's human. It's true for all of us. Some of these nuances are more harmful than others of this word. But the human tendency to strike back is universal in our fallen condition, but not in our restored condition. The first Adam is not like the second Adam. The first Adam had a clear choice to make, and he did. But before that choice, he was capable of not striking back. After that choice and after the, the pain and the effect of sin has rolled through humanity over the circle, over the centuries, we struggle as humans when we're confronted by sin. We do. We don't all struggle on the same things, thank, same, same sins, thank goodness. Imagine my limited preaching material if that were the case. No, we find all kinds of different ways to sin according to our personalities, according to what we do for a living, according to the relationships that we've been brought up in, according to the relationships we've thrived in. When your enemy becomes your father or your mother or your uncle or your brother or your sister or your friend of 30 years or someone in your church or someone sitting on the other side of the congregation, when your, friend, when your enemy becomes your spouse, the temptations can overwhelm you. And often do. What do we do? What do we do when we find ourselves in that spot? And if you've never found yourself there, your time is coming. I've had few enemies in my life. I've been very blessed. Or oh, I've had some adversaries and I've had some opponents and people who didn't agree with me. You know, there's always going to be people that are wrong in the world. You're going to run across a few of those. I've had very few enemies who really affected me to the core and caused me to want to turn my orientation from who I knew I was to being someone else, if only for a short while. I've often said, God, how about the pause button? We pause the button. You look the other way. I will work out what I'm feeling, and I'll get back to you after I'm done. And then I look on that keyboard for pause in Christian living I know right where the delete button is supposed to be. I know right where the pause button is supposed to be. And there just doesn't work. You can't pause the Jesus button. I can't stop being Jesus' child. Even when I want to so badly. It looks like so much fun sometimes on the other side. But it's not. And that's when our soul 
is in danger. And that's why these words are so credibly, incredibly important. It's our soul that's at stake when we are confronted by an enemy. It's not their soul, it's our soul. And we have to devise ways to handle that in the world in which we live. How are we going to do that? Well, I don't know how many of you, how many of you bought the book, the Psalms, that we're doing for Lenten devotionals? How many of you have a copy? Yeah, not too many of you. That's a shame. Uh, you're really missing something. Today's lesson, by the way, in that book, the Psalms, was simple. Sing. And it asked a question, do you sing? And I thought, being human, Lord, some of these people really don't need to sing. You know, it would be harmful to the ears all around them. And the writer says, nope, that's not true, Doug. Everybody needs to sing. And you know what? I remember saying that one day to a small congregation in a small town where I was beginning my ministry. And one rather large fellow who sat back there in the back never would smile, never would sing. Well, I was young and dumb. And I was very literal at that point in my life. So I just said, everybody, I'll sing. Next Sunday, old brother so-and-so wasn't there. Didn't think much about it until the next Sunday wasn't there either. Didn't know he'd ever missed two Sundays. When the third Sunday came, I better call. So I called his wife. I said, what's the matter? You said everybody ought to sing. He doesn't sing. I said, well, but he could. He said, nope, he really can't. Well, what she meant was he can't sing on tune or he can't sing with a melody. And, you know, that's true. But the wonderful thing about a large group of people singing together, unless you're right, right in front of them, you can't really tell who's off key. And if everybody would just sing with full lustiness, you wouldn't ever be able to hear anybody unless they were that very odd person who had the strongest voice in the room who had no sense of tune. We don't let them sing in the choir. I've been there when that, had to be, that message had to be delivered. It's always painful. But you always want people to sing. Now, that doesn't mean they can sing a solo, but they should sing. And you say, are you trying to run some of us off? Heavens, no. But you still should sing. You should sing because singing is a release from the emotions that you harbor inside you. Singing is an act of celebration about the power of God's word. And the Psalms are really helpful because they sing about truth that we struggle with. Lord, crush my enemies. That sounds so much better when you put it to song. <laughs> and in fact, you can kind of get jovial about it. And Lord, smack them down. Let them go to Sheol. I mean, the psalmist just gets carried away, right? I mean, we've been singing about these precatory hymns all week long. And I'm like, really? You're tempting me now? What is this? David, what are you thinking? Well, I turned to the back of the book. <laughs> Sometimes you have to turn to the back of the book. I knew what precatory psalms were. That's why I didn't read too many of them, because that's Old Testament theology. And I really know that most, a lot of it has been replaced, especially calling down curses upon your enemy by the different divergent Jesus who said, love your enemies. But you know what? I've, I've concocted my own theology. Are you ready for it now? I'm about to unload it for you. It's going to be a little different. It's going to diverge it. We're going to be a little divergent here. These psalms are written, first of all, for people to express to God how they're feeling. And did you know there's no use lying to God, by the way? Uh, God, I'm feeling great today. I want to kill my whole neighborhood who voted to do something stupid with my property. But I'm feeling great. 
God says, no, you're not. You're angry. You're so mad. Just tell me what you really feel. Nope, nope. Can't go there, God. You can't handle the truth. <laughs> God says, yes, I can handle the truth. Say it to me. So lately, I've been following the psalmist example, and I've been saying it. And I've been scaring a few people by saying it in a small group. Small groups are good for you. They encourage you to say things you need to say, things you'll never do. Get it out of your system. Because God is big enough to hear my anger and my hurt. God is big enough to deal with my human inclinations. God is big enough to love me despite who I am, or I would never have been accepted as his child. Singing the Psalms, reading the Psalms, these precatory Psalms help us in that way. They let us get it out. You know when you're so mad you can hardly stand it? Okay, if you've been married, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Especially those of you who don't want to get every argument over 30 minutes after it happens. Now, if you're one of those who have to solve it right now, you don't know how the other person feels who so just keeps saying, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. I'm not going to talk about it. Leave me alone. We'll talk about it later. When? Later. What day? Not, to, not tomorrow. Not today. Shut up. Now, my wife would never talk to me like that, of course. <laughs> we want to get it out. And getting it out is healthy. But getting it out onto someone else other than God is usually not so healthy. You need to learn to get rid of it without letting it hurt someone else. Calling down curses on one's enemies may be human. It may be natural. But when we do it, we need to be, realize that all we're doing is voicing emotions to let the hate and the venom from within us that trying to form out of our bodies so it won't lodge in our hearts, so it won't lodge in our minds, so it won't lodge in our thoughts, so we don't become fixated on retaliatory actions. Because one thing about this passage that is clear is, when you respond to the ugliness in your life with the ugliness of your own, the clear and first loser is yourself, period. He says there are four lenses to look at such scriptures through. First of all, we need to remember that there is such a thing as spiritual warfare. And the evil that we see in individuals' lives is really the influence of the evil one who's behind it. So rather than personalize the evil that they are doing to you, we need to pray about the evil that is behind them. A lot of times, most of the times, I don't even think they are aware that what they're saying or doing is not them, but comes from the one who loves to destroy and to kill. They don't even recognize that. They don't even, aren't even aware of it. We are engaged in spiritual warfare, and we need to act like people who are, are the writer says, and that's true. Secondly, he says, we need to remember that we need to transfer our own vengeance into the hands of God, because that's one thing the psalmist does over and over again. He calls for God to wipe out his enemies. Well, that is better than me deciding to wipe out my enemies, right? Because God will know what kind of action to take, and he won't take it from a position of anger or vengeance. Like I might. 
So whenever we send it to God and put it in God's hands, it is another step that helps us to distance our own hurt and pain and our desire to retaliate from the events that are happening. But it's hard to do sometimes in the midst of those events, isn't it? It's much easier to get into a you said, he said argument. Third, we need to remember, and this one hurts most of all, Christ died for all of our sin, for all sinners. Oh, no, here he goes again, praying for your enemies. I don't want to pray for my enemies. I don't. Surely Christ didn't die for that sin. But yes, he did. He died for every sin, every committed by any person, both in the past and in the future to come. You can't be such a big sinner that God has not already given his life for you in Jesus on that cross. Every sin can be forgiven. And it is in some ways already forgiven by the cross. And the last thing he says to look at through these psalms is to look at them through the lens of the final end. In the end, there will be justice. And you know, in the midst of our anger, we get excited about justice for those who are our enemies. What about the justice that's in store for us? Now, I'm comfortable with justice for you. I'm not so comfortable with justice for Doug. I prefer grace. I need grace. Maybe that's what it means to love your enemies. To pray for them that the grace of God might come to them. That they might be convinced by the word from God to turn from their ways. And when you say all of that, you say, well, gosh, Doug, you, you've just preached yourself into a real dilemma. You, you got to give everybody everything and walk around without any clothes and without a house. I don't think that's what Jesus was addressing. And I think there are limitations in other parts of Scripture to what he says. For instance, it also makes clear in Romans that God gave us the system of government to handle disagreements between people, and we have to make use of it. I know they're not very effective systems, and it's a shame when courts or religious institutions find themselves in legal battles like we find ourselves in right now. It's a shame. We ought to be able to decide that amongst Christians without going to court. It could be decided in, in 10 days instead of 10 months. It would be much more Christian. But we don't feel comfortable there. So we start looking like other people instead of diverging from them. Because somebody does something legal and threatens someone else and then they have to respond to protect the innocent. Yes, that's another curve where we must try to figure out which direction Jesus would take. But we must be certain that the directions we take are done in love and not anger or hatred. We must be certain that the actions we represent as a church are those who bring honor to God and to what it means to be Christ. We must be defensive. We must not tear down and destroy if we can help it at all. Love your enemies.
There's an order we like to do this, but I suggest this order instead. First of all, I suggest when you're faced with an enemy that is threatening you, intending to harm you, that you cry out to God your thoughts and your feelings to help you get rid of the pain, to help you deal with the pain honestly in front of God. And secondly, I suggest that you pray for those who are persecuting you, who are hurting you, that you remember that Jesus died for them too. For every raggedy sin and misconception and error that they're making, Jesus died for that just like he died for your own errors, your own bad choices. We should pray for them. And thirdly, once we've learned to pray for them, we can actually love them. We don't have to love what they're doing, but we can actually desire God's best for them. That's what Christian love is about. Desiring God's will be done in every life you come into contact. Doesn't mean you have to like how someone is acting. Doesn't mean you have to love their choices. Doesn't mean you have to love their personalities, quite frankly. But it does mean that you have to want God's best for every one of them. And that is what Christ did, and that's what we must do as well. That's why he did not judge that woman taken in adultery, but rather forgave her and embraced her with his heart and with his mind and encouraged her to live a different way. And lastly, we need to live like Christ. We need to be perfect to the extent we can be perfect. With each one of us and our own individual limitations, what one can do, another cannot. What one cannot do, another one can. Where one is weak, another is strong and vice versa. But to each one of our own abilities, with all the effort and spiritual endeavor we can pour into it, we need to seek to think and to live like Christ lived when he was the man, Jesus, on this earth. If we can do that, yes, we may be aware of many more ways in which we fail, but we will also look like Christ so much more than other people walking around us that they will say, look at that person. Let's follow that person. Let's live that way. Let's give ourselves to that kind of life. Let's not be imprisoned by the anger around us. I need to quit. I need to stop. I didn't want to preach this sermon. I still don't want to preach it now. I'm still fighting my own anger and my own hurt. But I want to tell you this. I am very encouraged that your church leadership and the leadership at the Trivium School or acting like Christ to the best of their ability in many different situations. I am thankful to associate with those few men and women whom you have chosen as your leaders. They have made me stop and think about what I want to do, what my urges are. They have carefully considered every response that they would make, while at the same time protecting the church of Jesus Christ. I cannot thank them enough for that. They have tirelessly been engaged in the past seven to ten days on email, constantly, back and forth, in meetings called, disrupting their work schedules, their family schedules, and everything else. And they have given themselves completely to represent you and the love they have for Christ. I want to thank them now publicly for that because it is not an easy thing to do.
I pray that like Jesus, we are able to look at those who are posturing to be our enemies and our foes, to take in what they contemplate and what they are doing without enough contemplation, and simply say, as Jesus said upon the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. If you can keep those words ready in your hearts and minds, then we will complete this journey together. I don't know how it will end. I don't know how many will be hurt in the process. But we must not succumb to our base, sinful human desires. I will pray for you if you will pray for me. Pray for your leaders. And God will fight this battle. God will decide what the end is to be. Yes, I have to admit, I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed of being in a position where I feel like this is the only alternative. I'm ashamed of having to find it necessary to announce to a congregation that this is where we are. I'm always ashamed when we act more like humans than we act like Jesus. And I don't mean just us. When anyone who calls themselves by the name Christian acts in that kind of way, it always brings me great sadness. It literally depresses me. It makes me feel pushed down that we find it so hard to overcome sin in our midst. But I know it's real. It's real in me, it's real in others. And yet, despite those feelings, we serve a Lord who forgave us and has called us to be better than we might have the urge to be. It's called us to follow the steps of Jesus. When it's time to take a left turn, take it. Diverge from the common core. Follow the path that he calls us to follow and stay strong. And so we shall. If you're here this morning and you don't know a God who has ever inspired you to serve him in that way, I'm sorry that the church has done such a poor witness that you've never heard about that kind of Jesus. But let me assure you that that Jesus is available to you this morning, to anyone who wants to respond to Jesus in that way. If you're here this morning and you feel like you're in a battle and you feel like you're alone, you're not. We would love to know you, to invite you to be part of this fellowship, and to share life with you. Chancel rail is open if you need to come and pray as we stand together and sing our closing hymn.